0: Thank you for listening to the New Life Church Podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. All that you do for us, Jesus, we invite you into this place. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You are welcome to move amongst us and be with us. We love you today and we praise you. And Father, we pray for every need that's represented in this room, God, that you would minister to us, that you would touch us, that you would help us and encourage us. And Father, we're careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Praise God. You could be seated this morning. Hallelujah. Well, first of all, what we want to do is take a moment and just welcome everyone that is out. If you are joining us online, we want to welcome you as well. We are so thrilled that you are worshiping the Lord with us. We also want to release at this time uh, junior high, high school. If you are in junior high or high school, you are welcome to go out with Alex. He's waving his hand in the back, and they have a service for you out in the youth room. Amen. Isn't God good this morning? Praise God. Well, we have Joe DeBolt. Look at you, man. Praise God. Jesus is good, isn't he? Brother, it's good to see you. It's been about a year, hasn't it? Been a while, but you're here. Praise the Lord. Amen. That's a testimony to the goodness of God. Hallelujah. Amen. We have a uh, special treat for you this morning uh, we have a guest speaker who has been a friend of this congregation for years. He has been a friend of mine. He has been a, a, a reference point and a landmark in my life. If, you are, if you've been around any length of time, you will have heard him preach, and you know the, the quality and the caliber of his ministry. And I guarantee you, he will not disappoint you today. And if you have not heard him, you are going to be blessed and you are going to be thrilled. And so let's welcome Pastor Greg Johnson as he comes to the platform. Hallelujah.
1: It's an awesome introduction. <laughs> so if anybody leaves here disappointed, I don't know what's up, what's up with you. Yeah, a, got an issue going on. Me and Joe are on the same schedule. It's been over a year since I've been here, bro. Yeah, we're here together. And the same reason, the COVID thing and all that hit. And uh, it's really, really good to be back with you. I want to share with you something I I spoke in the earlier service that um, I've been coming here um, to Kingman for many, many years. Um, I don't know how many altogether, but uh, 20-some years you know, from one season. And um, I can tell you this, that in all the services I've been in and all the times I've been here, I honestly have never felt – what I felt like this time, this visit, there's, there's something fresh that's happening here. Maybe you're here all the time and you're like, well, what you talking about? But uh, I'm just telling you that I'm coming in and I have a, a reference point of many places. And so I just want to give props to the Holy Spirit uh, and to the leadership here that has allowed him to show up and be a part of this. And so um, there you have that. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 16 in just a moment. And I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the church. The church has taken a bit of a beating this last um, 18 months or so. And uh, the statistics on closing churches are a little bit frightening. And I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the hope that I believe God wants us to have for his church. Because I think that that gets undermined sometimes by various things. But I was reading the other day in 1933... In Germany, the Nazi movement was on the rise very powerfully, and uh, what was happening was that uh, Hitler was um, just uh, establishing himself and his uh, doctrine, his dogma uh, over the entire nation, and for a period of time, the churches were completely on board with the Nazi movement. They had bought into it, they were compromising, they were taking loyalties that were reserved for Christ alone and giving those to the Fuhrer. Because that's what that's what was going on. It wasn't just politics, it was something else. And historian Galen Barker said, quote, Hitler did not merely want to rule Germany politically. Rather, he wanted to control the hearts and souls of its citizens. At a very fundamental level, therefore, this was as much a religious battle as it was a political battle. And so what was going on was the churches were uh, being caught up in nationalism. They were being caught up in uh, the German people and the German system and everything about Germany was the best there was, and uh, Germany first. Uh, That's basically what was going on. And so that was being and, and 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 taught, and it was being uh brought into the the schools at a early level and so the church began to capitulate to this. The church began to give in to this, and it as you know, it would lead to one of the darkest hours in history when over six million Jews were exterminated by the Nazi movement, and uh, the churches in Germany were complicit for a long period of time to this and so when this was going on in the midst of this uh compromise, there was a young uh, Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who became very concerned about what was going on. And he established a school, a seminary of discipleship in the city of Finkenwald. And uh, there he began to gather uh, pastors and disciples from around the country. And they began to get together under a very rigorous platform of prayer and study and confessing and worshiping. And he was trying to, to uh, kill the spirit of compromise that had come in to much of the Lutheran church at that time. His friends became concerned about him. You know, anytime you get radical for Jesus, people are concerned. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. slow down, bro. Slow your roll, you know. And so his friends were the same way, and they, they said, you know, we're reading your sermons, man, and, you know, you, you might want to, you're kind of a little extreme here in some of the things that you're talking about. And, and, the, and, and so he, uh, you know, he was under scrutiny from other Christians. One of his friends came to see him, visited the school there. And uh, shared that, you know, a lot of us are concerned, a lot of your friends are concerned, and so Bonhoeffer took him for a boat ride across the Oder Sound, and uh, they, they uh, went across this body of water, hiked up a hill, and from this hilltop, he could look back and see the school that God had ca- uh, called him to, st- to start, and he could see a giant, milita- a gi- a giant German military installation down the valley. And down that installation, planes were taking off and landing. German troops were marching. It was a huge military machine. And so while they were standing there, he looked at his friend and he pointed at his school. And then he pointed over at the base. And he pointed at the school and said, this must be stronger than that. Said The reason I'm doing what I'm doing is so that this will be stronger than that. I want to tell you something. That is God's... God's will for the church this morning is that this be stronger than all of that that is going on everywhere. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the hope that God has given us for His church. And I want to read from Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, of Hades, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I want to talk to you about the continuing promise of the church in our generation. A recent article I read in a Christian magazine, um, some ministers got together and were projecting the next 10 years. And uh, they were talking about how in many quarters especially in media in America, they're really predicting right now that they, they've won the battle. The church is going to become extinct in their minds. article said, in recent years, various writers and pollsters have been competing to see who, who can predict the end date for the church. In the eyes of many of the churches on a kind of hospice care right now, barely breathing and just being kept comfortable before her inevitable passing. I would say to that what Mark Twain said after he heard reports that he had died. He said, the news of my death has been greatly exaggerated. (laughs) I want to tell you, the church is not dead. But she has been sick. She's been a little wobbly. She's lost her way in some areas. She has, in some respects, you know, has not represented well her author. She can become disoriented. She can become seduced by the culture around her if she's not careful. She can become so obsessed with becoming relevant that her message has no power whatsoever. But if you were to ask me this morning, what is the one, you know, pinpoint the major failing in the last 50 years of the American church that has most contributed to her lack of health, I would say it in one word, it has been compromise. Because we live in a time when the church is compromising with the culture. There are woke churches springing up everywhere that are completely on the same page with all of that nonsense about gender, all that nonsense about sexual all that nonsense about marriage and traditional, all of that, they're completely there, and yet claim that they also believe the Bible at the same time. So we live in a time where the pressure is on us to capitulate completely, to just jettison every biblical value as being a, a irrelevant, antique, something from another age, and this is causing this giving up of spiritual, biblical, real estate in order to be accepted by a culture that hates us has taken its toll. One author said, because of the tectonic shift in sexuality, ethics, technology, secular ideology, religion, and globalization, much of the familiar landscape has been swept away. In many areas of our culture, it is almost unrecognizable compared to a generation ago. The spiritual devastation from much of this cultural change and the failure of the church to respond well have been almost unthinkable. So, in the world at large, this morning that you and I live in, the opinion is pretty much crystallized that you and I, as a viable option for a lifestyle, are kind of where we're not, a, there's no box you can tick for us. They've kind of removed us from as being an irrelevant, outdated institution. And on top of the world's negative opinion of us, is we have our own parade of failings and hypocrisy to deal with, don't we? we got the hippest celebrity pastors being exposed for multiple adulteries. That always helps. We have, we have the, the uh, unspeakable abuse of the Catholic Church. It's been documented and is, un, is under, under constant review right now. We have all kinds of, uh, of uh, things that we've done that have left a bad taste in the mouth of people. We're perceived as having no concern about the issues, uh, the you know, the, the social justice issues of our time, whether it be racial equality or the environment. And we are being... That we're hemorrhaging a younger generation because of our unwillingness, they say, to engage these things. The overall prognosis from almost every cultural perspective is decline. Everything you read, the trajectory is is down. For my own part, (laughs) I've had a I've had a very complicated relationship with the church for forty seven years. I have. I've had my own complex relationship. I have loved the church, and I have loathed the church. I've seen it as a place of incredible blessing and sometimes an unbearable burden. I've been parts of churches where, because of being a part of that, everybody in my family shunned me with good reason. I've seen the church be a place of breathtaking beauty and a place of demonic squalor. And I literally have scars on my soul from the church. If you lead, if you pastor a church for any length of time, it becomes a source of great trauma and great comfort. And honestly, many pastors today have grown weary of trying to maintain an institution that's on life support. And what basically what people are saying is, Jesus, you might be building your church, but I'm done helping. Because of the vibe. Just Google evangelical and see what comes up. The picture that we have, the image that has been portrayed about us is one that people are just stepping away from. And can I tell you something? I get it. I get it. I've wanted to divorce her myself. I get it. And, and sometimes you're, it's almost embarrassing to admit that you're a pastor. What do you do for a living? I teach. Yeah. What do you teach? Uh, Middle East history. Yeah, yeah. Because the moment you say you, the moment you say you're a pastor, uh, whatever, bro, you know, and so they move on to a more productive conversation. So I get it. How disappointed you can be with the church, and how many people are wandering around out there in you know, the world with a bad vibe towards the church. But whenever thoughts like that begin to mount up too much, I remind myself how history reveals. The unshakable commitment that Jesus has to the church. The unshakable, unrelenting, immovable commitment he has to his church. And though we have drugged his name through the mud, and we have embarrassed him with our hypocrisy, and we have distorted and diluted his message, to him the cross is a covenant he takes seriously. When Jesus says, for better, for worse, to you and I, he means it with all of his heart. And he remains, regardless of what you feel about the church, your church, any church, he is faithfully committed to his church. And he refuses to relinquish us. He refuses to give up on us. Uh, He remains loyal to us because love to God is not an idea. It's who he is. And throughout the scripture, you have these metaphors for the church that show us that his vision for and commitment to the church is true and is unchanging. Because the church remains the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and the temple of God. That has not changed. Modernization hasn't changed that. Technology hasn't changed that. Big tech hasn't changed that. Low tech hasn't changed that. Nothing has changed the biblical revelation of how God views his church. And none of that has changed his heart for us or his purpose in us. And I want to, in the time we have this morning, give you three biblical reasons for a renewed hope for the Church of Jesus Christ in an increasingly hostile and disinterested world. Number one, the church is still the bride of Christ. Let me tell you, Jesus is still in love with his church. After all these years, and she can be such a, you know what? Whatever word you want to put there, we can do. We can be all of that, but he remains committed to us. He remains in love with us. Jesus loved the church, Ephesians says, and he gave himself for her. That's what it says in Ephesians five, verse twenty-five. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleanse her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You want to keep a church on track? Keep washing her with the word. The reason many churches are sick and filthy is the word is not being preached, and so the washing is not happening. There's something about God's commitment to us as a bride. How many of you know when you When you meet your bride, you kind of give yourself away when you fall in love. You kind of lose your mind, really, a little bit. You surrender your schedule. (laughs) You surrender your finances, your time, even your body for the chance to be with the other person. And that's what love is. We understand that in merry love, in romantic love, yet we often fail to see Jesus' commitment to us in that same way. That he, he's, he's sold out for us. He's all in for us. He gave himself for us. And though flawed and broken, though flawed and broken and at times ho- ho- ugly as can be, the church is still the one that he loves. And he's totally, totally committed to her. Jesus doesn't view the church simply through doctrinal, moral, or ethical lens. Jesus views the church through marriage covenant lens. When he looks at us, he's seeing us through the eyes of a bridegroom. This is, the, this is the overlay of the entire Bible. It speaks of this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The Bible opens up with a man and a woman. In Revelations chapter 21 and 22, the Bible closes with a man and a woman. The Bible opens with a wedding, and the Bible ends with a wedding. Because our Bibles are essentially a love story. And Jesus is not committed to the church because he has to be like, oh, I've got to date this chick. He wants to be with us. God is in love with a woman, and her name is the church. If you know your Bible, you know this wedding, marriage metaphor is everywhere in the story of our salvation. When God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into their destiny, in the book of Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, he made four promises to them. He says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with many acts of, of judgment. And I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. These are the four invitations a Jewish man made to his bride on their wedding day. I'm rescuing you, I'm bringing you out, I'm taking you as mine, I'm paying for you, you're mine. So when you read read about Jesus delivering Israel, he wasn't just delivering them, he was proposing to them. In Exodus 19, 5, he calls Israel his treasured possession, which is a wedding term. So the reason we can have hope for the church this morning is because Jesus is still in love with the church and still totally committed to the church. And the challenge of loving a bride like us is we can have a promiscuous heart at times. We can become seduced by idols and worldly ideologies and politics. And yet Jesus himself continues to seek us out and restore us and heal us and wash us and bring us back to himself. It is this vision of God's passion for the church that gives incredible hope to me and you this morning. And calls each of us, I believe, to a renewed commitment to our place in the church. Frank Viola said, what's the Lord looking for? He's looking for a people who will take their stand in Christ. He's after a people who will dare to believe they're part of Christ's beloved bride. A people who will defy what they see through their natural eyes and instead look through his eyes. He's looking for a people who see themselves as he sees them through the prism of divine righteousness. Righteousness part of a new creation where the fall has been eliminated. This is the necessary beginning to fulfilling God's grand mission. To take any other view is to serve God out of guilt, religious duty or ambition rather than out of love. We can love the church and have hope for the church and give ourselves to the church because Jesus has given himself to the church this morning. Number two, the church is still the temple of God. We're still the place of His presence. There are so many people, you know, today if you asked them, if you were looking for God, where would you look? They wouldn't choose here. They wouldn't choose a church. They'd Google it first, okay, if so they could find Him. Which is, And, and, and a lot of them just think that, you know, that the last place you'd find God would be in some, you know, evangelical church or Pentecostal church or Reformed church, which is sad because the reality is the church is designed to be the place of the presence of God. I don't know if you understand that. The church wasn't designed just to be a classroom or a study place or a singing place. It was designed to be a place of presence. Yeah. Yeah. It was designed to be a place where God's presence were. And so presence is a priority in terms of the role of the church. That's where our priority is, is to, is to seek his presence. Amen. Not just instruction, but encounter. And presence is a priority. And many of the things we think about God in the church sometimes, when people think about church, well, the law, the sacrifices, the priests, theological doctrines were never intended to play the central role they've come to play. The central idea of the church was that's that's God's house. That's where God lives. If we go there, he'll be there. That's the understanding. From the very beginning, God's purpose and passion was to be present with his people. That's why Genesis doesn't open up in a classroom. It opens up in a garden with naked people walking with God. Read it. (laughs) The law, the sacrifice, the priesthood were all ways God's presence had to be mediated after the fall. But they weren't meant to be the whole show. God's original design was to dwell with us. He's trying to restore us to the original design. Did you know that? He's trying to restore us to what was lost in the garden. We're not here to perform for Him. We're here to walk with Him. And whether you understand it or not, all of human history, regardless of what the pundits are saying, regardless of anything you're hearing, all of human history is headed towards restored, intimate, face-to-face relationship with God, the Creator. That's where we're going this morning. This whole thing ends up with Him. In fact, the entire redeemed earth and creation is going to be a temple of intimate communion and presence of god i love this idea this whole thing of i i, I don't care anything about being playing a harp on a cloud bro and diapers i don't want to do that you know. <laughs> i want to be with jesus and the bible says this in revelations 21 22, i did not see a temple in the city because the lord god almighty and the lamb are its temple the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is its, la- the lamb is its lamp. So God's presence among his people has always been a priority. And so our calling as the church is to be a, a dwelling place, a temple of God, because his will, his desire, was, he wasn't looking for a building to dwell in, but a people to walk among. And what happens in religion is we try to, we try to create these external, uh, you know, dynamics that, that represent God. What he, re, what he really needs is a heart that wants God, a heart that wants to encounter God. I don't want a symbol. I don't want a picture. I don't, I, I don't want an analogy. I want an encounter with God. I think of all the things I remember when I got saved in 1971 is I remember the presence of God being in those services. And I'm feeling his presence. I'm like, "Dude, I was at a Led Zeppelin concert at the San Diego Sports arena two months ago, and now I'm in church. <laughs> you know, What's up with this? And I feel something. I felt the presence of God, It made me want to weep, made me want to always made me want to get down and ask for forgiveness. It's the presence of God. It's what made the difference. Had the presence not been there, I would not have stayed. Cuz the music was not compelling. Religion has always focused on externals. But God focuses on the internal. And I think Moses understood this. When you read the life of Moses, you'll find he's having a conversation with God one day about the Exodus. He's brought the people to a certain you know, place in the trip. And he says, hey, you know what? Uh, and, and so the people have kind of messed up, which pe- God's people do. And so God said, you know what? <laughs> you take them. I'm done. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, I'm not going. Because we need you to be with us. If we're going to be the people of God, we're going to need the God part. Otherwise, we're just the people. Exodus 33 says, Moses said to him, to God, if your presence does not go with us, does not send us up from here, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? How is anybody going to know we're any different? If you're not there, we're no different. We just have a different schedule on Sunday." We missed the first part of the game. Amen. If your presence does not go with us, don't send us up. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me or with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Question mark. What's going to distinguish us as God's people? Notice Moses doesn't, you know, mention any of the the list of distinguishing traits the Jewish people had. Circumcision, food restrictions, Sabbaths, festivals, an ongoing list of uh, 618 some ethical commandments that would define them for 3,500 years. Moses knew that none of these externals would ever define them, would never really make them different, would just make them odd. What would make them different was the presence of God. That's what would set them apart. That's what would set us apart. Every other distinction, social, cultural, religious, anybody can display. Anybody can imitate. Anybody can do. But you cannot imitate the presence of God. You can't pretend. Oh, I really feel him here. No, you don't. When he's here, you don't have to tell me. He, when He's here. I don't, I don't need you to give me the sign. He's here. God's presence was the unmistakable desire that he had. By the time the Lord was ministering in Israel... The rebuilding of the temple had been going on for 46 years. They were, the, the Jews were infatuated with their temple. And at the time, it was quite a spectacle. The rabbi said that, uh, that no one who has truly seen a, a beautiful building until you've seen the temple. And they were so impressed by the temple that the disciples said, Jesus, look at the temple. And, and, and everybody loved the temple and was impressed by the temple except Jesus. He goes, looks like a place where dead people live. It looks like a place where robbers and thieves live. That's what he said. I think I'll go in there and turn some tables over. Everyone was impressed except Jesus. And his opinion of the temple, he knew something that a lot of us don't know, is that after Ezekiel chapter 10, the presence of God no longer dwelt in the temple. Everything there was a symbol. There was no active presence of God in the temple In Jerusalem, until Jesus walked in. Until Jesus came into the outer courts. That was the first time God had been there since Ezekiel chapter 10. It was void of life and substance. And Jesus said, it's going to be destroyed. That's what he said. He said, it'll be torn down and rebuilt in three days. God's temple is going to be torn down and rebuilt in three days. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about himself. That when, when I die and I resurrect, I'm, and, th- and the third day when I raise from the dead, it's going to be a rebuilding of the temple. It's going to be a rebuilding of the priesthood. And, and the priestly system is going to be obsolete. And my presence is going to be on the earth because the temple have moved from a place to a person. Whether you understand it or not, I can fully appreciate it. The most amazing truth of the Bible is that God's presence dwells in you and me. People like us, man. We are that people of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. It blows my mind that God dwells in me and is trying to seek a way to manifest through me, but I have to cooperate with him for that to happen. I think the big question sometimes is, Can anybody really see Jesus in me? Our world is often drawn to the prestigious and the visible and the fantastic, especially when it comes to church. We emphasize, you know, properties and buildings and can create a false sense that the building is the temple and the Lord manifests himself at every time you know we have a, a religious gathering. But we are the temple. That's why wherever two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. That's astounding, isn't it? Do you know that Jesus revealed some of his most revelatory, amazing things to little tiny groups of people? He, did, you know, he, did, he didn't have an Instagram you know, and a side hustle going on to you know, get the news out. We are a temple this morning, and wherever we go, his presence goes with us. But the problem is sometimes it's hard. It's hard for people to see God's presence in us it's hard for us to see God's presence sometimes in the church. I love a story by Philip Yancey in one of his books. He talks about God's presence in the least likely places. He and his wife were touring a leprosy facility at Nepal called Green Pastures. He had never been to one before. If you've ever been to one, you know what they're like. Very upsetting and overwhelming. These people hideously deformed, stumps instead of feet and hands. Faces and bodies ravaged by the disease. While they're walking through the air, the common area, one particular woman has crawled over to, to uh, Yancey, and uh, she doesn't have a nose, it just, uh, just a hole all the way up into her sinus cavity. She's totally blind, covered in scars, moving by sound alone. She's wrapped in gauze. Later, they were leaving the facility, and Yancey, out of the corner of his eye, notices that this woman... It has crawled. Her, she's crawled from where she was to the exit. She's trying to get to him again, as he leaves the colony. He says these. He writes in his book. I'm ashamed to say my first thought was she's a beggar, and she wants money. My wife was worked among the down and out. Had a much more holy reaction. Without hesitation, she bent down to the woman and put her arm around her. The old woman rested her head against Janet's shoulder and began singing a song in Nepali, a tune that we all instantly recognized Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The guide said, Demaya is one of our most devoted church members, the physical therapist said later. Most of our patients are Hindus. But we have a little Christian chapel here, and Demaya comes every time the door opens. She's a prayer warrior, and she just wanted to greet and welcome every Christian visitor who comes to green pastures. She no doubt heard us talking and knew who you were. In an instant, Yancey realized the prejudice, his prejudice for her appearance had blocked his access to God's presence in her. This experience reframed, he said, his whole understanding of the church as God's temple. He writes this, a few months later, we heard that Demaya had died. Close to my desk, I keep a photo I snapped just as she was singing to Janet that day. I see two beautiful women, my wife smiling sweetly, wearing a brightly colored Nepali outfit she had bought that day. Holding in her arms an old crone who had flunked any beauty test ever devised except the one that matters most. One of that, Out of that deformed, hollow shell of a body, the light of God's presence shined out the Holy Spirit had found a home. Can I tell you something this morning? It doesn't matter how beat up, how broken we look, Jesus is still in here. Jesus is still in here. And a lot of times we, by appearances alone, we will discount that God could be there. We will discount that His presence could be in that person. Maybe they're too broken. Maybe they're too needy. Maybe they're standing beside the road with a sign. That's why I have hope for the church. It's because Jesus does. And he's willing to occupy broken bodies. He's willing to occupy broken people and shine through them if we can see it. The church is also, finally, still the body of Christ. I can have hope for the church because it's the bride, it's the temple, and it's the body of Christ. You'll often hear people say, it, it was, it, a few years ago, it's very, it very, very hip to say, you know, I really like Jesus, but I really don't care for his church, man. Not quite like that, but. Well, the problem is that the church is the body. The church is Jesus. Did you know that? The church is the body of Christ. We're his body. We're his hands. We're his feet. We're his eyes. We speak for him that that, that we are his body. And Jesus is fully invested in the church for his purpose on the earth. In other words, the only way that the will of God is going to be done on the earth is through the body of Jesus Christ finishing the book of Acts and doing his work. And being his feet and being his hands and being his eyes and being his mouth. Amen. We may think it would be really cool to have the Lord here personally in the flesh so we could clear up all of our theology. Uh, we weren't very close on that one, were we? <laughs> you know it's going to be that way. You're going to meet Jesus. You're going to say, Greg, good to see you, man. Listen, by the way, half the things you preached, <laughs> But I like you, so welcome home. <laughs> I'm saying, Jesus didn't think it would be the good for us for him to stay. He says it's important for you that I go. Because if I go, I will send my spirit. I'm going to be sitting behind at the right, right hand of the Father, but my spirit's going to be down here reminding you, guiding you, teaching you. Helping you, comforting you, convicting you. Because Jesus wasn't looking for a dictatorship. He was looking for a partnership. And that's what the church is, his body at work on the earth. C.S. Lewis said, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. But he wanted not a domain to dominate, but a people to partner with. In his vision of tangible presence, Christ has chosen to manifest himself through us. You know, Jesus, you could do this so much better than me. I know, but I'm not going (laughs) to. I'm going to do it through you. And you, and you, and you, and you. Regardless of what you look like, regardless of what your past is, regardless of what you think about yourself or somebody told you about yourself, I'm going to use you. You're going to be my people. This revelation of Christ and his body was made real to Paul on the Damascus Road when Jesus confronts him there. The light shines from heaven, knocks Paul to the ground, and Jesus appears to uh, Saul and says, listen, why do you persecute me? In Paul's mind, he's going, I wasn't persecuting you. I was persecuting the church. (laughs) Oh wait. Right? Because Jesus implied that to persecute his followers was to persecute him. And the head in heaven felt the pain of the body on earth and still does. This is a cornerstone of New Testament teaching. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. From time to time, I'll preach someplace, and a young pastor, or a young disciple will come and say, Pastor Johnson, what new thing do you think God is doing in the earth? I think, bro, you don't know the old thing yet. When you get a handle on the old thing, come and see me about the new thing. But the reality is, God's not doing any new thing. It's new to you. Because you don't know everything. <laughs> so, did you know that? There's a few things that'll be, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, because you're you. And you can't know everything. So it's not new to God. It's not a new thing when God starts saving people and manifesting himself in a worship service so people can heal. That's not new. It's unique. But it's not new. God's doing what he's always been trying to do. Looking for a people who are willing to be filled with his presence and live for his purpose on the earth. Boom, mic drop, boom. Looking for a people that will be his body. God wants to move and express himself in the world and where his agency for making that happen. God desires to express himself on this planet. See, the answer for all the stuff, all the chaos going on, it's not political, folks. Dear Lord, God help you if you've bought into that. Because these things are going to be, all be gone someday. Yeah. You know, the Roman Empire lasted 800 years. But today, it's a place where tourists go and buy pizza. No, no one's like, oh, man, Italy, look out. Yeah. No, it's sunken into the pages of history. And yet the gospel of Jesus Christ is still being preached this morning right here in Kingman, Arizona. And around the world, gospel is still alive, it's still going, church is still here. Roman Empire, not so much. Frank Viola wrote, evil spirits desire to inhabit human bodies because they crave expression. That's the whole point of possession. They seek to take over a human body so they can express themselves through it, employing it for wicked purposes on the earth. Jesus Christ is now in the spirit. He craves expression too. He also seeks to make his life visible through a a many-membered being. The body of Christ exists to express God on the earth. Every time you gather in this building, God's desire is to manifest himself through us to to the world and to you to strengthen your faith, to build your faith, to encourage your faith. And the church is the place he's chosen to make that happen. It is his body. In 2007, there was a movie that was taken from a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It was a very moving story of a Frenchman named Jean-Dominique Bobby, who had been the editor of a French fashion magazine, L -L or L-E, L-E. But at the age of 43, he suffered a massive stroke, was in a coma for 20 days, and when he awoke, he lost all control of his body. And he entered a condition called the locked-in syndrome, which basically meant he could move nothing. His mouth, his arms, nothing moved. He couldn't speak. He couldn't communicate. He had one saving grace. He could blink one eye. His mental faculties were completely intact. Inside of this body that has no control of anything, is a fully cognizant, fully aware man, listening to every conversation, uh, uh, unable to comment on any procedure that's being done to him. At one point, they had to sew one of his eyes shut. And he writes, he, later when he learns to communicate, he, sets, he lets him know what that was like. His mental faculties were complete. And the movie chronicles his frustration and determination to communicate somehow through a body that was broken. Eventually doctors became aware of what was happening in him and they began to struggle to find a way and they realized that this one eye, he could control it. And they learned that he could, he could communicate by having someone go through the alphabet and he would blink with, with, with the letter he wanted written down. He wrote an entire book that way. It's a excruciatingly slow process. He wrote the book on which the film is based And the sad thing is he died about a month later from pneumonia. But he shared the agony of having so much to say to his family, his wife, children. So many things he wanted to speak, but he couldn't because his body was broken. I remember reading that story, and I thought, first thing I thought was, God, thank you for a fully functioning body, even though it's old and a little wobbly. Thank you for that, man. And the other thing I thought of was I was struck by the resemblance of Jean-Dominique's situation to his body and God's relationship to his body, the church. Then, in some sense this morning, much of the church is in a locked-in syndrome. Christ inside of us, full of vision, longing, passion, and compassion for the world aches to touch it aches to express himself but something's happened to his body and it's not functioning properly and he's got like one eye blinking to try to communicate his vision we're getting a fraction where's all the power pastor we're getting a fraction we got one eye blinking and god's trying to express him all of his all of his passion but we've We're only allowing a fraction of what he wants to do. My prayer this morning, and the reason I put this sermon together, was my prayer that in the days and the months ahead of us, we don't know what's coming. But that you and I, and all of us that are part of his body on the earth, wherever that individual body is, that church is, that we'll begin to see signs of life we'll begin to see us unlocking parts of the body, unlocking the other eye, unlocking the hands, unlocking the feet, unlocking the movement that enables us to, be, to fully represent him in the earth so that Jesus can communicate through us. That's my prayer for Kingman. That's my prayer for the church I attend in Gilbert, Arizona. It's my prayer for every church everywhere. Lord, awaken your body. Awaken your body. Jason, would you come? got you, you sneak up on me? Oh, yeah, you are. I thought he might have been behind me. If he does, you tell me. If he, if he sneaks up on me. Stand to your feet this morning with me, will you? You've been sitting for a long time. I'm happy to report to you this morning that in spite of all the negative reports on the church, there are some amazing signs of life in the body of Christ this morning. And I was so it was so it was so a blessing for me personally to come here this morning and honestly sense that this body has got more going on, I feel right now, than it has in a long, long time. And and I'm not here I'm here to pander to John. I like John. I don't, I don't play that game. Homie, don't play that game. Okay. I'm telling you what I felt in the service this morning. And what I just sinned spiritually. I could be wrong. Sue me, you know. I could be wrong. But I tell you, I, I know what I feel when I feel. My feeler still works. You know? And I want to tell you that I know you I know people are worried. You are worried about the future. You know, you're worried about this and you're worried about the political implications and the international implications and you're worried about electric cars and, you know, you're worried. But do you know that the church in China has grown to over 100 million people under the fiercest communist government on the planet, under the most brutal regime? Those people... Those people said, "You know what? You're not going to stop us from gathering. You're not going to stop us from manifesting the love of Christ and the power of the gospel, even though you put us in jail." So you know, we're, we're America. We're a little spoiled. We've had we've had a 200 years. We had a pretty good run. I don't know where that's going to go. But we're here to save souls. We're here to to to. to, to Rescue people, man. Because this stuff's passing away, bro. Right. It's all going to be gone someday. Yeah. And only only what's eternal will last. And the only thing eternal in this room is your soul. Right. That's the only eternal thing in this entire room. Right. Everything else will be gone. Yeah. These bodies fading away. Look around. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Not the same Weakening every day, cells dying, hair's long gone, you know, at least for me. And yet, and yet, God's word's still true. The book still ends the same way. There's a revival this morning in parts of Central America and the Pentecostal church that is unbelievable. Massive growth, huge rise, supernatural signs and wonders, pockets around America. where that same thing is happening. There's been more growth in the church. You know, African nations are sending missionaries to America now. (laughs) That's exactly what they're doing. They're like, oh, man, those Americans are going down the tubes. Let's get some missionaries over there. Yeah, Yeah, that's what they're doing. Everything I said this morning, you know, everything that was true (laughs) everything that came from my heart. I said to say this, that each one of us in this room this morning, in the days ahead, if we'll do our part to convert the church from compromise to conviction, to restore her saltiness, turn up her light, and let the real Jesus, let that Jesus that captured you at some point in your life, that captivated you, that made you turn away from everything else, made you just turn to him. You, when you discovered him, you went and sold everything to buy that field to have that pearl at great price. I'll, I'll give up everything to have that. If we, can, if we can do that, there's hope for the church. And from my perspective, I told you I've been hurt by the church in ways that are unspeakable. But I can tell you this much, it's worth my life. It's still worth my life. It's worth all of it, all the blood, sweat, all the tears, all the betrayals and backstabbings and backslidings and everything else. doesn't matter. It's worth it. You know why? It's his church. It's not my church. It's his church. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for having us as a bride. We're sorry this morning for our times of unfaithfulness to you, Lord. We're sorry for the times we've turned away and gone after other things. We're sorry for the idols we've embraced. We're sorry for the ideologies that are against your word that we've embraced. And we turn from them this morning, Lord. We place our eyes firmly back on you today. We ask you, Lord, to be our our bridegroom. We ask you to come for us, Lord. We ask you this morning that help us to be your body. Let each of us find their place and be joined together by love and by commitment, Lord, and by blessing that we will produce all that you've called us to produce. Help us to prioritize your presence this morning. Help us to learn to wait on you, Lord. Help us to be sensitive to a season of visitation and not just move through our itinerary, Lord, our schedule of service, but give you a chance to move and a chance to speak, a chance to touch, The chance to help lord our our lives are committed to this and we pray your blessing and your favor this morning in jesus name and all god's people said together amen pastor john
0: praise god what a powerful message that was amen praise god before we dismiss you we want to remind all the men Tonight, 6 o'clock, right here at the church, we're going to have a men's meeting. Pastor Greg is going to be ministering to us, so mark that down. We're going to release you from this place. Go, have a great afternoon, love one another, and be the church. Amen. God bless you. Remember, our prayer team has come up, our ministry team. If you need prayer, they will pray with you. Come on up and get prayer.